Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, yet ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key, not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Good evening. Uh, this is Joe Schuldenrein with another episode of Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. Uh, the topic for today's program is uh, one of the most critical sites in archaeological investigations in the world. It's the longstanding site of Stonehenge. Stonehenge has assumed a position of uh, great prominence in, in archaeology, and when you mention archaeology to many people, uh, the word Stonehenge would probably be uh, one of those free association contexts that one would establish because of the significance and, and the importance of this site. My guest today is Dr. Mike Parker Pearson, who has under, been undertaking some recent investigations at Stonehenge, and uh, they are leading to some revisions of the traditional models. And uh, let me give you a little bit of background about Dr. Pearson. He is one of Europe's leading prehistorians working in Britain, Denmark, and Madagascar, and he specializes in the study of later prehistory, especially the Neolithic and Bronze Age uh, periods. Uh, Dr. Pearson has a BA from Southampton and a PhD from Cambridge. His professional career continued as an inspector of monuments for English heritage, which to American audiences would be uh, familiar as a the National Cultural Heritage Operation in the UK. And then he moved to Sheffield University, where he worked for 22 years and joined University College London in 2012 as a professor of British later prehistory. He is the author and editor of uh, 18 volumes, um, plus numerous scholarly papers. Uh, Dr. Pearson's work is widely cited, and he is recognized as a leading authority on death and symbolism in the prehistoric world. He can also be seen in several episodes of Time Team, and, uh, which is a British production, and he has starred in several documentaries about Stonehenge. Pioneering work in the Hebrides of Scotland was followed from 2003 by the project that we're going to be discussing today, which is the Stonehenge Riverside Project, which has revolutionized our understanding of the history, use, and, and significance of one of the world's most famous and intriguing archaeological monuments. Uh, Dr. Pearson's research continues uh, apace at Stonehenge and is also revising our understanding of the Beaker people. It's my pleasure to welcome to the program um, Dr. Uh, Mike P uh, Parker Pearson. Thank you so much for coming on the program. It's a pleasure. Uh, now, Dr. Pearson, let's start with sort of an introductory mm. component. Why don't you familiarize with the audience with what has traditionally been known about Stonehenge uh, when the earliest investigations took place and how our interpretive lines have developed over the years uh, up to, uh, to the period to which you're doing your research? We know that Stonehenge is uh, 5,000 years old. 
Uh, but of course, when the early researchers started investigating it 300 years ago, they had no idea. And uh, of course, the popular idea of why Stonehenge is associated with ancient druids comes from that time when all people knew about British prehistory was what Julius Caesar had written all about it. And of course, when he invaded Britain in 55 BC, there were indeed lots of druids. None of them, as far as we know, ever associated with any stone circles, though. So that was the first theory, if you like. And it's kind of, you know, it's remained, uh, particularly in the public imagination, that Stonehenge has something to, to do with druids. But of course, there was no way that anybody 300 years ago could have known that Stonehenge was two and a half to three thousand years earlier than Julius Caesar. And um, uh, yeah, that said, the idea is stuck. Uh, we also have another theory that Stonehenge is some kind of observatory for the heavens. Uh, we've known for a long time that it's aligned on the solstice axes, uh, so midwinter sunset in one direction, midsummer sunrise in the other. And uh, ever since Gerald Hawkins' time, an American astronomer who worked out or suggested it was some kind of computer, uh, many people have thought that its purpose was uh, as a celestial observatory. Uh, we've been working there since 2003, and we've come up with some very different conclusions. Uh, obviously, the, the solstice alignment is there. It's very important to it. But it's the fact that this was a place of the dead. And we have excavated um, some 63 cremation barrels from Stonehenge uh, that we've uh, just finished radiocarbon dating. And I think they shed some light on who they were, as well as helping us to understand more of what Stonehenge was about. Let me let me bring us back a little bit though, because you you raised a very interesting point that the earliest recognition of the site uh, basically goes back to 300 years. What were the concepts of what the site meant and the, what the configurations of the monuments meant at that time, and how did that systematically change through time? How did people's interpretations mm. systematically yeah. change? I mean, we know all about the astronomy. I think that's what most of the lay audience would be familiar with. Yeah. But let's go back to 300 years ago. What was the original concept here? Well, this is a man called William Stukeley, and he was quite a keen observer of antiquities. Um, what he did that was different from many of his predecessors and, and contemporaries was to say, this is actually very ancient indeed. This is before the Vikings. This is before the Romans. And he, he showed that uh, the style of design, the lintels, the uprights, this wasn't actually the sort of thing that you found in classical architecture, which many of his contemporaries had wanted to believe. So uh, in doing that, he also has to think, well, what is it? You know, this great big edifice. So he decides it's a temple. And uh, that kind that, that has just stuck ever since. Uh, but I think you know, we're now considering it more of a, a commemorative monument than actually a specific temple where um, rites were, were held over, over hundreds of years. 
But the temple concept would seem to be sort of a natural concept if one puts place mm. oneself behind, uh, say, 200 years ago and looks at some amazing edifice like this and, you know, you get your, your clear idea that this is something of major historical uh, significance. And when you look at the very deliberate uh, configuration mm. of the stones and the monuments, it makes sense. So how mm-hmm. do we go from temple to the astronomical and, and, and the astronomical the astronomical perspective that uh, was developed. How did, how did, are there stages in that in that concept uh, in terms of how archaeologists and antiquarians looked at it as it, as as time went forward? I think I think um, uh, some people thought well maybe it's a, a temple run by astronomer priests, <laughs> and that was an idea that was current about thirty years ago among right. archaeologists. Right. Uh, this was also a time when people believed that these were barbarians who <laughs> were right. not capable of constructing architecture. <gasps> so there had to be somebody coming from a higher civilization, uh, somewhere such as Mycenae in Greece or the Minoan civilization in Crete, or even the ancient Egyptians. And some have suggested that it's got to be even higher than that from outer space. Uh, but what we've learned, of course, is that it's actually perfectly at home within the cultural uh, milieu of Britain itself in this time, uh, in the early uh, centuries of farming. Uh, farming, of course, was introduced to Britain about 4000 BC. So you don't actually uh, need to invoke anybody from another civilization to come and show those barbarians how to do it. They were already building circular monuments, albeit in wood, and in fact all of the the design features of Stonehenge, um, you can pretty much see their, uh, you can see all their antecedents within the culture of the British Neolithic. Let's let's go back to to the period when, uh, for lack of a better word, contemporary archaeology sort of Evolved and 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 was developed, and mm-hmm. I think there was a fluorescence of archaeological knowledge that was sent, uh, re, uh, grounded in scientific investigation that would put us say into the 1940s, 1950s. Mm-hmm. Where were we with Stonehenge in 1950 in terms mm-hmm. of its interpretations and how the scientific community looked at the site? Yeah. This was the time when they were talking about diffusion from the east. And the main excavator at Stonehenge at that time, a man called Richard Atkinson, right. uh, famously put forward this idea of Mycenae as being the place of origin of whoever the master architect uh, was that built Stonehenge. And, of course, this was really in the very earliest days of radiocarbon dating, but it wasn't until some 20 years later that uh, a young archaeologist called Colin Renfrew um, wrote a, a very influential paper called Wessex Without Mycenae, right. Stonehenge is right in the middle of Wessex, and um, he had trouble publishing it because it was too radical an idea, but he was just using the earliest radiocarbon dates to say, well, actually... Stonehenge is earlier than Mycenae, so it can't possibly have been the product of a Mycenaean architect. And that's really when we start to see a a truly modern approach to investigating Stonehenge. And since then, uh, maybe carbon dating has improved, we've collected even more samples, and now we have a very well-worked 
chronology because the whole sequences don't hinge itself. Well, we know that, that Sir Colin Renfrew has become one of the most influential peer uh, individuals and scientists in contemporary archaeology. Did he cut his teeth on Stonehenge? I mean, it, it seems like uh, you're talking about the 1970s at this point, uh, where you're looking at uh, probably some significant radiocarbon dates. Where did the, first of all, where did the radiocarbon dates come from? Were they in buried contexts? So where, where were they? And where? And how did how how did they really? How did the carbon get exposed? Was it a systematic excavation? What was going on at that time? Uh, that's right. You, the first major excavations carried out by archaeologists at Stonehenge. Uh, began um, in uh, 1900, and then there's another batch of excavations, and pretty much half the monument was excavated, and that's in the early 1920s, before we have Richard Atkinson um, digging there in the 1950s and 60s. So there was already a good bank of material, um, the ampler picks used to actually dig out features, to dig the holes, to put the stones in, to dig the ditch that went around the monument. So these were curated, and it was possible to, um, to, to use them for radiocarbon dating without having to go to dig new holes. Of course, more recently than that, we've had to go back ourselves to Stonehenge to carry out our own excavations in order to target particular questions and get dating evidence to answer those questions. So, so uh, basically, um, the context for the radiocarbon dates was pretty well established when, uh, when Renfrew was taking his determinations. And uh, his interpretation, did, uh, did his interpretation uh, of the site, was it basically a chronological reassessment or did he actually have a different functional interpretation of what the site meant? Yes, Renfrew's um, scheme was uh, one of uh, evolving complexity, so that Neolithic Britain was evolving from a group of tribes into a series of chieftains, and that Stonehenge was the apex of that evolution with what he called a confederation of chieftains. It's very interesting because it's actually, it chimes very nicely with the results we're getting now to suggest that Stonehenge was actually um, contributed to by people coming from all over Britain, but even from Scotland. So we, we have uh, uh, some very interesting evidence to suggest that it's actually a monument of unification. And uh, this is an idea, in fact, also put forward before Colin Renfrew by a man called Gordon Child, who was um, a well-known historian, of, pre-historian of his generation, in which he suggested that um, the bringing of the blue stones from Wales, this is one of the types of stone at Stonehenge, from over, what, 140 miles away, that this was all part of an act of unification. And I, I think there's some very good evidence uh, for that now. So uh, you have basically Stonehenge working its way into archaeological lore because people who are involved in this profession certainly know about both Renfrew and Gordon Child. Mm. And, uh, you know, the Gordon Child connection is something that's very, very intriguing. And uh, I'm just curious as to how he wove Stonehenge into his notions of cultural diffusion 
and mm-hmm. his ideas of uh, of survival of of communities in, in the quasi-Darwinian sense of uh, how these people uh, developed this monument and whether or not it was a major center for civilization, which is how people looked at things back in the fifties. Uh, how would you? Uh, when we get back, let's let's talk about um, uh, Gordon Child's approach mm-hmm. to Stonehenge and how that revolutionized archaeological theory, which between the 1950s and 1970s certainly uh, took a major leap forward in terms of how we looked at archaeology generally and Stonehenge in particular. We will be back with the program after these words. The future of online TV is here. View exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else. Visit voiceamerica.tv today. Many people are seeking to make a difference in the world, but few actually have the tools to do so. Every week, host Mary Beth Lodge and her guests will have you thinking forward and will give you the tips to keep your life, goals, priorities, and choices on track. The result is an easier, happier, and more inspired life. The name of the program is What Matters. Tune in every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What really matters is the positive changes that you'll bring to your life and the world just by listening. Step into the doorway to conscious choice, greater health, and well-being. Attain the balance that you've been seeking. Tune in and turn on 1111 Talk Radio. Feed the mind. Embrace positively. Release the tension. Step out of fear. Host Simran Singh will help you broaden your mind and open your heart toward a greater understanding of how to take charge of your life. 1111 Talk Radio is here every Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time on 7th Wave Network. 1111 Talk Radio. Because shift happens. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra-goarc.com. Now, back to the program. Good afternoon, good evening, depending on your time zone, we are having a very uh, provocative discussion with Dr. Mike Pearson, who is uh, recently revising and refining and, in a sense, even almost revolutionizing our interpretations of what Stonehenge means in the archaeological record, and um, uh, we have discussed and, and taken this, this discussion in the direction of trying to see how Stonehenge itself and its interpretations sort of relate to effectively archaeological theory as it moves 
uh, into more sophisticated gradients in the 20th century. And since Stonehenge is such a major monument for archaeologists and for the general public as well, um, uh, Dr. Pearson is, is giving us some insights as to how Stonehenge is a central port, point in, in general, in the general de- uh, development of archaeological theories that, that have become increasingly more sophisticated and comprehensive as archaeological um, investigations proceed through, uh, in, through into, and into the late 20th century, now into the 21st century. So we're at about 1950, 1970, and we're trying to see uh, where Stonehenge fits into uh, Gordon Child's interpretations of, uh, of his concepts, which involve cultural diffusion and something called the Neolithic Revolution. Mike, why don't you take over and see and let us know how Stonehenge was interpreted by these, uh, these major scientists and uh, cultural uh, evolutionary people uh, at that time. How did, how did Child look at it? Yeah, well, Child, of course, is famous for his ideas about diffusion and migration, uh, that agriculture was something that had to come from the Middle East because that's where the domesticates uh, were originally uh, of course, yes. domesticated. And, of course, that's absolutely right. We've been slightly um, cautious about interpreting a lot of his other ideas of migration and diffusion. And in some cases, it doesn't stand up and others it does. But when it came to Stonehenge and stone circles, he had noticed that stone circles were a peculiarly British phenomenon. So he said, these cannot have been diffused or uh, brought by migrants from somewhere else. It has to be an indigenous tradition in Britain. And um, it was, in fact, only in the very last year of his life, in 1957, that he actually formulated the idea that Stonehenge might be um, what he described as a monument to unify the people of Britain or a symbol of a of an everlasting, of, 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 a, of a sacred peace, I think those were his words. Uh, it was a throwaway line uh, in the last edition of, of his greatest work um, on the um, uh, 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 on European civilization. So um, uh, he uh, he left us this tantalizing note, right. <laughs> and of course, the, the year he retired, he uh, jumped to his death. Uh, off a large cliff in uh, Australia. Well, he was in Australia at the time. I mean, he wasn't. He was no longer in England, right? At all, or he was in England? No, he uh, was. Yes, yes, yes. He, was. He, he retired in the summer. In the, in October, he he. Uh, that's he that's right. Um, I think one of the major uh, contributions that uh, certainly his involvement in the site. Uh, brought to the fore was, was, as you said, the stone circles which took off in a lot of other places. For example, in North America, the site of Columbia had a variety of different types of analogous structures, uh, this time made not out of stone but out of wood. And, of course, uh, when they tried to look at, the early investigators tried to look at Cahokia as an archaeological model for um, for sophistication and, and urban life, uh, they called it the American Woodhenge. <laughs> it was sort of modeled in the same way because it was such a spectacular construction. And once that astronomical perspective was brought in, it just caught fire, it seems like. And anybody who saw a, a mysterious circle of what looked like older uh, 
configurations that that conformed to that uh, that shape, all of a sudden it was drawn to Stonehenge as a comparative frame of reference, and that model seemed to have held for a very long time. Correct? Yes, I think that's right. Um, of course, it's just worth reminding your audience that uh, we have Woodhenge, which of course gave its name to the Cahokia Circle, right. uh, just literally two miles down the road Correct. from right. Stonehenge. And that was actually what set us off in our new uh, investigation, was realizing that there might be some sort of a connection between Woodhenge and Stonehenge. Right. So let's let's take us back then. Uh, we're in the 1970s, and and what was done, say, between the 1970s and when you started your work? Where mm. where was Stonehenge moving in terms of its research focus? Well, I think one of the major steps forward was uh, a piece of um, salvage archaeology in advance of a road line going right through the middle of the largest henge in Britain. Uh, this is the site of Darrington Walls, uh-huh. uh, which um, it has this bank and ditch, um, and it's, uh, uh, what, um, 440 metres across, so you're looking at, what, 13, 1400 feet in diameter. Right. And uh, it was within that, on the road line, that the excavators discovered two previously unknown timber circles and literally just a stone's throw from Woodhenge itself. Um, so uh, it was, that this was the site we started off with, and it's actually where we found that underneath all of that, there was a village, and we think that that is the village where the, the builders of Stonehenge were living when they constructed the second stage of Stonehenge. So that, that takes us basically to the 70s. It's then that we have um, a period of, um, of reassessment because, uh, unfortunately, those earlier archaeologists never published their work on Stonehenge. So half of the monument had been excavated, uh, but there was no final report. And the team worked on this until publication in the mid-90s. And with that came the first reliable radiocarbon dates from absolutely certain contexts. And that enabled us to see for the first time that Stonehenge was much earlier than everybody had thought. So this first stage, beginning around 3000 BC, and then the actual uh, circle of Sarsens, and 500 years later, around 2500 BC, so were these stratified deposits? Uh, was, it, was it very clear that there were successive <laughs> occupations in the area and that Stonehenge actually represented sort of an evolutionary uh, acceleration of, of events or social organizations or uh, economic systems, for example, that were already at least, if not in place, where we're certainly starting to move in a certain direction? Are we, are we looking at a successive periods of occupation in which a connection can be established? I don't think we're seeing so much an evolutionary development. We're actually seeing a series of very rapid pulses, uh, if you like, in, in activity and building, and then long periods of, of stasis, of nothing very much happening. And, and now that we're using more precise methods of radiocarbon dating and statistical modeling of radiocarbon oh, dating, yeah, we're starting to discover that not just Stonehenge, but 
many of our Neolithic monuments, so these are uh, stone tombs, these are great mounds like Silbury Hill, uh, but these are these were built in very short periods of time indeed uh, and, and used uh, similarly for very short periods of maybe no more than a generation or two. And this seems to be exactly what we're seeing with Stonehenge, uh, where we've been able to date the camp at Darrington Walls, the settlement, and we, we extrapolate that there was, would have been around a thousand houses within this settlement. Its lifetime was only, but was less than 45 years. And in fact, we suspect that they probably weren't there for much more than a decade. And that, we think, is people gathering to build the second stage of Stonehenge, but instead of using it as some kind of temple or sort of long-term uh, spot for worship and pilgrimage, they just seem to go away. And then they don't come back until 100 years or, late, or so later. They rearrange the monument, they go away, they come back a century or so after that and, and do the same. So we're looking at a... a a rather different kind of evolution or development than that which Colin Renfrew had envisaged, which is it's bit by bit becoming more and more a sophisticated society. And um, what we've been more interested in is the kind of reach that the monument had at this time, uh, because, of course, this is something we can now trace by looking at where the animals have come from right. to actually... Um, uh, to, for the, the workers to feast on. And uh, we've had some extraordinary results, uh, which have really just, uh, just recently been released. And we would have expected those animals to have come from a largely local uh, hinterland. But what we're discovering is that they're coming from all over Britain, from the southwest, from Wales, from Scotland, and this is way beyond the, um, you know, what would actually be needed. Uh, I don't know if you have this expression of food miles in America. Right. These, are, these are unnecessary food miles to bring animals right. 500 miles or more from Scotland. Uh, this, is, this is much more some kind of political imperative uh, or religious imperative that everyone's got to be there. And uh, we've been investigating the possibility that this may have something to do with a very brief moment of political and social unification, cultural uni unity as well, across Britain, as Gordon Child had suggested. So your timelines are getting very, very refined here, and, and you're mm. able to isolate a very, uh, certainly in terms of, of, of what we now think of in, in terms of archaeological chronology, these are abrupt episodes, and they were, from what you're saying, yeah. so bring us back through time, if, if the site is basically 5,000 years, the earliest, mm. they, the earliest occupation goes back at 5,000 years ago, uh, say 3,000 B.C., where do we have periods of occupation versus periods of abandonment, and how does that record uh, conform to what we know about the settlement and the use of the landscape as we move through time, especially given how much work you've been doing, say, in the past uh, 10 to 20 Sure. Well, we have the first farmers in Britain around 4,000 B.C. Right. So it's 1,000 years later that the, f 
first stage at Stonehenge is constructed. And we now know that it's built as a bank and a ditch, and there are holes for stones as well as timbers. And we think that some of those stones may actually have come all the way from West Wales, over 140 miles away. Um, it's the stones themselves. The stones themselves, And yeah. what is the theory behind this? Well, up until now, there have been various ideas that these might have had healing properties, that they were specially sought out. Um, but our own, uh, under, uh, our own theory on this one is that what we're actually looking at is the bringing together into a single monument of the symbols that represented two very different ethnicities, tribes maybe, within Britain. Because at the beginning of that Neolithic, it seems that the people who arrived came from two very different ancestries. So you've got the farmers coming across the North European plain, right. uh, people that we call linear band ceramic, and crossing at Dover. But you've got another group of farmers who are coming from the Mediterranean around the Spanish and Portuguese uh, uh, coasts up into Brittany and then across to the west of Britain and Ireland. So you've got these two very different groups, very separate material culture. And there's a fault line down Britain, and Stonehenge pretty much lies on that fault line. And um, what I'm wondering is if actually the reason to bring these stones from West Wales and it's where we think there are some of the earliest stone monuments of the British Neolithic. To bring them to Stonehenge is the moment in which you, you see an incorporation of the symbols, if you like, of the two separate groups. And in other uh, aspects of people's lives, this is the first time ever we see material culture styles, the ceramics, the houses, the tombs, the burial traditions, actually being uniform across uh, the whole of Britain. And it's quite short-lived. It's gone by uh, shortly after 2000 BC, and Britain then dissolves into a series of, uh, of different political units, polities, we might call them, so that by the time Julius Caesar turned up in 55 BC, they were all at each other's throats and uh, beating hell out of each other. And we will come back and continue this fascinating discussion on the uh, evolution and occupation of Stonehenge as, a, as one of the key archaeological monuments in the world right after these words. Stay connected. Sign up for our newsletter. Go beyond your favorite Voice America shows. Visit iradioblog.com. Ever wondered what private investigators really do and how they go about solving cases? Each week, P.I.'s Declassified gives a glimpse into this little-known world. Join your host, Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator, in conversations with detectives and experts in the field. False confessions, forensic evidence, finding missing persons, exposing fraud, exonerating the innocent. All areas that Francie and her guests will cover. And have they got stories to tell? Tune in and call in to the live show Thursdays at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern, 
on Voice America Variety. Listen for Trust Across America every week on the Voice America Variety Channel. Tune in as host Jordan Kimmel is joined by national experts in the fields of accounting, finance, organizational behavior, and sustainability, as well as companies that are applying strategies that are enabling them to be recognized as doing the right thing by the American Trust Awards. Your host, Jordan Kimmel, is himself a trusted professional with years of experience in applying strategies and consulting with today's leading firms. Trust Across America is heard Wednesdays at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra goarc.com. Now, back to the program. Good evening again. This is Joe Schildenrein with our very special guest, Mike Pearson. Dr. Mike Pearson, who is one of Europe's leading prehistorians, and his most recent uh, excavations are casting a more informative and certainly expansive light on the developments of st- in archaeological research in Stonehenge. We are talking about a model of archaeology and an interpretation of these phenomenal monuments that is now being very, very tightly fleshed out. Um, I believe you're telling me, Michael, that, um, that peak occupation is around 2500 B.C. Why don't you pick it up and talk about the fluorescence of the culture and the economy and the demographics of the occupation uh, when it reached its peak period? Mm. So 2,500 BC, that's four and a half thousand years ago, that's the moment that Stonehenge takes the form that we recognize when we look at it today. So you've got these great big stones, uh, these are sarsen, a type of sandstone, and they've been brought about 20 miles from the north. Uh, Do we know how they were transported? This has been a matter of huge speculation. Uh, not a week goes by without me getting an email from someone to say, well, if they <laughs> push them across the ice uh, during right. the cold winter. But unfortunately, that what we work. do know about the climate at that time is that it's no, even yeah. more mild than it is today. So uh, that seems inherently unlikely. Uh, we're at the moment investigating the likely routes that they may have taken. And uh, one of our new projects is, is uh, trying to locate some of the actual quarries uh, 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 where the stones were brought from. Um, but yes, it was an enormous undertaking. And then when they get them to Stonehenge, they've got to address them. They've got to shape those stones. And it was literally bashing them with small hammer stones again and again and again. So um, it, it kind of been good work. It must have led to terrible injuries like tennis elbow. <laughs> and uh, um, but, you know, we, we've got a very good insight into uh, the conditions of life. Uh, we have the remains of the houses that they lived in at this uh, great village of Darrington Walls. And 
Uh, this, is, this isn't a slave labor camp by any means. The quantities of, of waste, the amount of uh, animal bones just in our own excavations, 80,000 animal bones, vast numbers of stone tools, broken pottery sheds, and some of the, just the, the organic nature of, of the refuse deposits, they would have been sort of wading around knee-deep in the, the kind of the, rub, the, the refuse generated by all of their feasting. Uh, we, we also know that um, they're doing this at certain times of the year because we can examine the we can examine the teeth of the pigs in particular to discover that they are being killed at two moments in their lives. So the first is at nine months, right. and the second is six months after that. Now we are fairly sure that. They're giving birth in the spring, so they're killing them and feasting on them, particularly at midwinter, but also in the midsummer period as well. And of course, this chimes with us because that's the solstitial axis embodied in Stonehenge, but we also see it in the monuments of timber, the timber circles of Woodhenge, and the other ones around Darrington Walls. So, uh, in a way, it's understanding that the astronomy isn't something abstracted from society. It's all about timing of people coming together to take part in these feasts and to carry out these great construction works. So, so are the astronomy theories pretty well, do they, do they jive pretty much with what we know? I mean, are the astronomical interpretations pretty accurate, or how, how has that been changed by your investigations and by what we know about the much greater picture, which you've certainly expanded upon? Yes. What does that do to the astronomical interpretations? Yes. I, think, I think we no, no longer now see Stonehenge as an observatory. If you wanted to observe the movements of the sun and the moon, you can just do that with a couple of sticks, sure. as it were. Right. You don't need these enormous great stones. And uh, you know, we're very lucky that our astronomer, Professor Clive Ruggles, who's uh, an international specialist on this uh, subject of uh, archaeoastronomy, and he was able to say that, that this is a monument because they're not actually concerned about getting pinpoint accuracy. It's just going to be roughly in the direction, say, of the northern major moonrise or of the solstice or whatever. And I think that's a really important point that he's brought out. He's also, I think, uh, shown that many of the quite extraordinary claims for Stonehenge as a predictor of eclipses, etc. These things are possible, but he says you've still got to provide a bit more evidence as to whether they were actually done. And this is what we can at least do with the solstices, because we can tie that in with the evidence from our animal bones and, and when the, the pigs were being culled. Aha, uh -huh. so that all fits into sort of a comprehensive model that uh, sort of congeals around a, a certain theme, and it all seems to be coming together as a result of what you're doing. I'm curious as to how many people you think lived in the immediate vicinity of the site during the peak yeah. occupation. Yeah. Um, we were very lucky when we excavated it because um, the bank of the Henge, which 
structures put on top of it to basically monumentalize where people had lived in this, this, this village. That preserved the floors of the houses and all of the, the refuse that they'd left on the floors and in the middens outside of them. So, um, you know, when we, we, we Worked down to this layer, and we realised that we were actually on Neolithic ground level. Uh, there'd been no erosion whatsoever. Wow! And, um, from from the, we, this lucky uh, sort of this bit of fortune, we could then look at by opening a bigger area, we could see what our density of houses was, and. Um, in addition to that, we were able to go back to previous excavations, like the, the um, salvage dig in front of the road line, but there had been many others, and everywhere someone had dug through that bank, they'd hit these thick layers of refuse. So we realized that this was a very extensive village, and later completely... Um, uh, enclosed, as it were, by by this monumental bank and ditch. So um, it's basically working from that and saying, okay, given our density of houses where we've dug, what's the likely number of buildings within this? And uh, we think that would be about a thousand dwellings. In addition to that, we've got a reasonable idea about how many people are living in each of the houses. They're not big. They're only, well, 20 feet by 20 feet. And um, we know from ex uh, examples in the Isles of Orkney off the northern tip of Scotland exactly what these internal fittings of these houses look like. Because in shape and in plan and internal arrangements, our wooden houses are the same as these Scottish houses in Orkney, which they had to build of stone because they chopped down all their trees by this time. And there you have stone furniture. There are stone box beds. There are stone cupboards and storage space. It's really quite extraordinary. And we can see exactly where the holes in the ground formed by where the wooden fittings had been to see that this is exactly the same layout. And, and basically, our houses have got two beds in them. Um, you've, you've got a, um, an entranceway, and the beds are against the walls on the, on the sides to the left and right of you. Wow. And then the storage um, cupboard to uh, right in front of you. So, um, you know, we, we estimate that maybe you could have about four people in each of these houses. And I think what's been interesting for us is to realize that this isn't just a kind of a camp for male builders. These are family houses, so you've got, a, you know, you've got specific cooking areas within them. So I think we're looking at men and women and children all involved in uh, actually building Stonehenge. How do you look at Stonehenge now in a regional context? I mean, was it was it an urban center that serviced, say, a larger region? What do you know about commerce, social organization, and how is that knowledge being expanded by what you've recently done? Well, I think the interesting thing has been to see changing scales of, of influence and, and movement. Uh, we can... Uh, do the uh, isotopic analysis, as I was saying, with the cattle on humans as well. And we're getting some really interesting uh, patterns coming out. So for the first thousand years of 
the British Neolithic, uh, the early farming communities. They're not at all mobile, and there's a lot of violence, um, particularly along this fault line, uh, which runs uh, right across Britain between East and West at that time. Right. And um, they've all got their different pottery styles. And all of that changes after 3,400 and by 3,000 B.C. And uh, a lot of these innovations, these new styles that take over and become universal within Britain, they're not coming from the centre. They're coming from Orkney, off the tip of Scotland, uh-huh. and from and from western northern northwest Wales. So it's the sense that the peripheries are making this very interesting contribution and changing the whole nature of that society. So um by the time Stonehenge is being built around 2,500, we're also able to uh, examine individual burials from that period, and particularly from the succeeding couple of centuries, uh, the ones that we call the Beaker people. And not only are many of these coming in from the continent, but there is very high mobility. So half of our sample of 300 individuals, and this is from all over Britain, they're actually um, they're, they're people who have ended up being buried in a geological region completely different to where they grew up. So I think it's understanding that you know, there's, there's a, uh, the age of Stonehenge is one where a lot of those barriers are removed in terms of uh, you know, if you go over the next hill, whether you're going to get bumped on the head right. by, uh, by the, the right. strangers there. Uh, it's in, it's in, instead uh, a world where everybody would have understood immediately when going into someone's house at the other end of the country exactly what was done, what was what was where within it. The pottery would be instantly familiar. So um, I think it's, it's seeing Stonehenge as set within quite dramatic and brief change because, of course, what we see with the Beaker people arriving is the coming of metal and of the wheel. And uh, we've been quite intrigued because despite Britain being uh, much more kind of linked up in the Stonehenge age, there's absolutely no evidence of any cross-channel connections. So it looks like they're not at all interested in what's happening in Europe. But... It looks like the, the demographics all of a sudden changed dramatically changes this time, yeah. Yeah. right? And, and the, the interesting thing about these Beaker people, they're coming from areas of Europe where there is no tradition of big monument building. Right. So, so whatever their way of thinking, their way of living, they're not interested in the many laboring for the benefit of the few. And it's it's a much more politically decentralized social structure that we're seeing in, in terms of what they represent. And that's really the end of the big monument building. We have a brief period of overlap as Beaker uh, power consolidates within Britain. But after that, no one works for the man anymore, if you want to uh, we just, we just have a couple of minutes left. I would like for you, if at all possible, to discuss the decline. Was it dramatic? Mm. What happened there? It's just a couple of minutes, but I think everybody would like to know. What happened? Well, well Stonehenge 
and struggles on. Um, there are two periods around 2,300 and 2,100 when the small Welsh stones, the blue stones, are rearranged within the central setting at Stonehenge. Um, but other than that, um, that's about it. So it's, um, it's an interesting... Uh, it, it goes out with a whimper, not a bang. Uh, and that whole complex, I think, then not only fades away, but it's incorporated into an area of fields by the period that we call the Bronze Age. So at least by 1600 BC, uh, uh, 3,600 years ago, uh-huh. Stonehenge is now isolated within uh, an area of fields. Um, it, it's a place that also, of course, became uh, a cemetery, not just within Stonehenge, but it's the area around it. We have these round barrows. So these are mounds. They're probably built by kind of kidney-based groups, you know, small lineages or whatever. And these litter the Stonehenge landscape. There's over a thousand of them in its vicinity. So um, it's, uh, it just becomes a place forever associated with the dead. Amazing. Well, we're going to have to close at this point. Uh, still more questions remain than we've answered, but certainly you have advanced the interpretive potential of Stonehenge uh, monumentally, if you want to use a pun for that, and uh, how your, your work is going on. Yeah, uh, we've uh, published a book on this, uh, and the American edition is coming out literally in a couple of months' time. Uh, we're going to be off this summer to investigate the quarry sites and those that are in Wiltshire 20 miles to the north but the others that are over 100 miles away in um, in Wales so there's a lot more exciting things to come yet uh, it, it's been a fantastic roller coaster of a, of a project and on that note we're going to have to close I want to thank my special guest uh, Dr. Mike Pearson on providing some very new insights on Stonehenge and what it means and what it will eventually mean for archaeology and and, uh, later prehistory. And I want to thank you very much, Mike, for being part of the program. Thank you. Many thanks. Okay, good evening to everybody. Bye. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 